every year. Tourists and locals in London and surrounding areas flock to the streets for this state opening of Parliament. It's a grand occasion where the Queen processes from Buckingham Palace in her state coach down streets that are lined with crowds of people who are waving and cheering at this wonderful sight. She comes to the Palace of Westminster where she is escorted to the robing room uh, where she is then decked out in the full regalia that queens wear or kings wear as well and adorns, if you like, the very symbols of her sovereignty, that massive crown on her head. And as she processes into the House of, House of Lords, um, everybody is on their feet and every eye is on her. And even in that House of Lords, there is a throne. And when she takes her seat, everyone hushes Everyone stops to listen to her speak. Now, to anyone who doesn't quite know the ins and outs of British politics, it seems pretty clear who is in charge. The one on the throne. The one with the crown. But dare I say it, in reality, the queen has remarkably little power. She is constrained, if you like, within the limits of our constitution. Which then might beg the question, well, who is really in charge? Well, some would say real authority lies with the prime minister. Others would say real authority lies across the Atlantic in the White House or across the Channel in Brussels. But frankly, it doesn't lie with the woman who wears the crown. Who is in charge? Well, there are people in our city, some people who think very little of political power and monarchs. There are plenty of people in our city who believe that they are personally in charge of their own lives. They are, if you like, as the image shows, the self-made men, the self-made women. They're in charge of their own destiny. They'll decide what they do. It's all up to them. They can hew out of whatever situation they're in the very thing that they want to be. It's pretty much Nebuchadnezzar's view in Daniel 4. Verse 30 tells us he's taken a stroll on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And as he looks out over the city, he says, All this is by me and for me, by my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty, he says. So Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in charge. Well, the Bible makes a claim that God is actually in charge of everything. God has said in Isaiah 46, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I will not give my glory to another. Colossians 1 specifically actually points to Jesus as the one who is in charge. It says, in him all things were made, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or powers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. That's very different from the by me and for me mindset of Nebuchadnezzar and of people in our culture. Well, here's the thing. Until we acknowledge that God is sovereign, that God is the one who rules over all things, God will humble us. The key to this passage is seen in the fact that the the verse that we have on screen 
is pretty much repeated three times by three different voices. That until you acknowledge that the Lord God is the most high God, sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, then you are in great danger of being humbled by him. So this is what we're going to look at tonight. What will God do first of all? Verses 4 to 19, we see God, first of all, shakes us from our sleepy godlessness. The first thing we need for God to do is to shake us from the sleepy godlessness in order to waken us to the dangers of opposing him. And what we, we need this basically because we are all too easily numbed by the simple contentment of life. Verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar is living the dream. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Now, if someone turns around to you and says, I'm content, I'm at home, I'm contented, I'm prosperous, what do we think of that? Success. Oh man, we dream about things like that. That's what people in our city are living for. We even dream of a retirement like that one week into our first ever job. That's what we think. At home, in our wee detached houses with a double garage, content, sitting on our John Lewis sofa with an iPad in one hand and a Pinot Noir in the other. Prosperous, two cars in the drive, three kids through uni, four holidays in the sun, plenty of money in the bank, secure. Love it. There's security in that. For many in our city, it's their idea of heaven. Is that your idea of heaven? These are the things that can fuel our sense of self-sufficiency. In those moments, we are tempted to look around us and think, well, yeah, I got that degree, so I did that. I've achieved this. I'm the self-made man. I'm the self-made woman. But in those moments, we are tempted to think, all this is by me and for me. Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar's done. We see that if we follow Christ as our Lord and King, there will be something that will awaken us from this sleepy godlessness. I wonder what it was for you when you became a Christian. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. This was God's way of warning him that God opposes the proud. Nebuchadnezzar has a nightmare. We see from verse 5 onwards. He's had a nightmare like this before, of course. Remember chapter 2? The great statue with four different levels of gold and the great stone. Don't forget the stone that, that bashes it all to pieces. Well, this time the dream is about a mighty tree. It was so big it could be seen from anywhere on earth. It was so fertile it provided food for everything on earth. And it was so secure it provided shelter for every animal on earth. And Nebuchadnezzar is no doubt at this point identifying himself as the tree. Now tell me, if you are an awesome tree, what is the one thing you do not want to see? A lumberjack, right? You don't want to see an angelic lumberjack, do you? Okay, coming from heaven. That's not a good sign if you think you're a mighty tree. But that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar sees in verses 13 to 16. Where did the angel come from? Well, from heaven. Do you know what that means? God is behind this. God is behind this. He's in charge, remember? And then verse 14 helps us see why this dream turned into a nightmare. It started out with the declaration of the angel. The voice of the angel was loud. Now that would be scary enough. But then secondly, look at what the content of that loud proclamation. Cut down, trim, strip, 
scatter. Well, if you're a proud king identifying yourself as a tree, you're not going to like hearing those words. But it gets worse. The tree, as the dream goes on, becomes a man. Weird things like that happen in dreams, don't they? Well, in verse 15, the tree becomes a man who would live like an animal in a field because his mind would be changed from that of a man to that of an animal. Now, this is humbling for Nebuchadnezzar even to hear, never mind experience. Because in summary, here's what you've got. You have Nebuchadnezzar going from a mighty tree under whom all the animals of the world shelter to becoming an animal without any shelter. Humbled. Humbled. And this is what this dream is communicating to him. This is what God is trying to shake him, to help him see you're proud, Nebuchadnezzar, and you need to be humbled. It will be a painful experience for you, no doubt but it will be for your own good. Otherwise, you might never ever see and realize that I am God and that it's all by me. It's all for me and my glory and my majesty. How has God humbled you in the past? What has God done to shake you from your sleepy godlessness and to recalibrate your thinking and the direction of your worship away from self to the one true God. Praise God, he loves us enough to warn us, right? Praise God, he warned us when we were in our sleepy godlessness. Praise God for cutting down, trimming, stripping, and scattering various aspects of our lives that kept us from him tearing at us, these idols, tearing them away. You know, God does things like this to us to teach us what we really need to know, that he is sovereign, that he is in charge, and that our failure to acknowledge that is sin. And here's the second thing I want us to see tonight. God does this to teach us, indeed, that he is in charge. So, verse 17 tells us that Daniel, as he communicates to Nebuchadnezzar, he's this, this dream, you need to acknowledge his loving rule. So verse 17 tells us God is going to humble Nebuchadnezzar in order to teach everyone, everyone who's alive, what they need to know. This is going to happen so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. As I said, the same thing mentioned three times in the chapter. First time we hear it comes from the angel of God. Second time from the servant of God, Daniel. Third time from the very voice of God himself. The Most High, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone who wishes, you're in danger. In your pride. Because God wants everyone to know that he is in charge of everything. He's the one who even gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom in the first place. Daniel's already told him that in chapter 2 and verse 37. God has given you power and dominion, he said to him. And even though Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was high over all, God wants Nebuchadnezzar to realize that his is the most high kingdom. Higher than anybody else's. Affirming his authority and his charge. Now do we see why Nebuchadnezzar's by me and for me attitude is so ludicrous and so wrong? He was not giving glory where it's due. 
Worse still, he's taking credit for what God had given him. That is plagiarism on a cosmic scale, as Tim Keller says. I better quote him since I'm talking about plagiarism. And it's sinful. He says this. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is plagiarizing what God has authored when he struts around saying everything is by me and for me. We get this concept, don't we? We get this concept. Let's say that Martin here is a gifted author, a gifted writer. I'm no prophet, Martin. Now let's say he has written a mushy romance novel and it's a masterpiece. Now, imagine Martin entrusted me with the responsibility of taking in his finished masterpiece to the publishers. And imagine I go into the publishers saying, Martin Smith has finished this masterpiece, and here it is. But instead of doing that, I, 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 I take the cover page off and I print one of my own, and I say, here is my masterpiece. How do you think Martin would feel about that when I make number one on the New York Times bestseller list? How would Martin feel about that when that book makes me a millionaire? How would Martin feel about that when I've got the privilege of being interviewed on the one show? <laughs> He'd be cross, right? Would you be cross? He would, thank you for nodding. Um, but why? Because I'd be taking all the plaudits for the very thing that he had done. I'd be taking all the credit and all the glory and all the praise for the things that I had not done. He'd be cross, and rightly so. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Now we have to realize if we're here tonight, and maybe if you haven't yet chosen to follow the Lord God or put your trust in Jesus, I wonder if you see, see some of the same plagiaristic tendencies in your own life. Are you taking credit for the very things that God has given you as gifts in your life? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 asks us a question outright. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you, did not, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So are you the fastest player on the football team? Do you think you made those legs? I mean, did you get a good degree at uni? Tell me, how did you go about making that brain? You get what I'm saying? We didn't choose these things. These are grace gifts to us. We didn't choose our race. We didn't choose our gender. We didn't choose the time or the place where we'd be born. We didn't choose our personality. And yet we're convinced we're self-made men and women. Prancing around. It's by me. It's for me. No, it's prideful. And it's wrong. It's a serious arrogance, actually, especially in light of Jesus, the true king, of whom it is said all things were created by him and for him. So what should we do? If we come to see that we're guilty of this spiritual plagiarism, we should confess our sins. That's what Daniel hopes Nebuchadnezzar will do. We see this in verses 20 to 27. He basically says to him, you need to repent. Do an about turn before it's too late. Now, what he shows him here in verse 26 in particular is that there's hope here. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge what? That heaven rules. Heaven rules. So Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar, all is not lost. There is still hope. And he points to the fact that the tree is not absolutely destroyed 
It's been cut down severely, but there remains a stump. And if this guilty one acknowledges his sin, there will almost be freedom from the chains that bind that stump. Pardon, and incredibly, restoration, and even more incredible than that, blessing. (laughs) That's crazy. Blessing. Well, there is hope, even for people as proud and brutal as Nebuchadnezzar, even for people like us. But what is required of us is the same as what is required of Nebuchadnezzar. Repentance. Verse 27. Be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. In other words, give credit where credit is due. Give God glory. Renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. In other words, bear fruit in keeping with the repentance that you would utter with your mouth. Highlighting for us again the simple principle. When you say sorry, change is seen, particularly with God. And this is the whole point of the warning. It's the whole point of the dream. It's to help us change direction. To look away from ourselves in the by me, for me. And to say it was by you and for you. Nebuchadnezzar's already had a few chances to change. This is the fourth time we've seen him in Daniel. We've watched his understanding grow, if you like, over three chapters now. In chapter one, he was a polytheist who thought his gods were bigger than Israel's God. In chapter two, after Daniel interprets his dream, he says, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, but he still doesn't submit to him as the one true God. Then in chapter three, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerged unsinged from the fiery furnace, he says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No other God can save in this way. Nobody's allowed to say anything against this God. But that's not far enough. He does not submit to that God as his Lord and his God. What will he do this time? Well, we've seen in the passage already. There's no repentance at first. No acknowledgement of the Most High God. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It must have been heartbreaking for Daniel. I wonder if you've ever spent time with a friend or family member, a neighbor talking about Jesus, getting to the heart of the gospel, saying, be pleased to hear my advice. Renounce your sin. Renounce your sin and turn to God only for them to stall. It's heartbreaking because we know that God is serious with these warnings. He's not messing about And Nebuchadnezzar discovered this for himself in verses 28 to 33. He needed to understand that God is serious, and a year later he's on his roof. He's got swagger about him. He's checking out his city. It was amazing. Let's face it. It was epic. History says so. The streets ahead of him, he was streets ahead of everyone when it came to architecture in those days. Man, he loved his wife so much, he built her one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I mean, it was beautiful. You know, you're driving into Babylon. What do you see? Winner of the best city awards. You know, every year, year of one year of one year, it's an awesome city. Is this not great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, he says. Now, before those words even before even the sound waves from his voice box even pass by his lips, there's a voice from heaven. That's got to be scary. 
And immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Can you imagine that? Walking around strutting with swagger on his rooftop and immediately on all fours, mooing like a cow, looking for some grass because he thinks he's a cow. Cut down, humbled, trimmed, stripped of that beauty, scattered. What did he expect God to do? Did he doubt his faithfulness? Did he doubt his power, God's willingness to go through with the very warnings that he had offered? He should have learned by now that God is not human, that he should lie, or not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? No. The very God who gave him this authority took it away in in, in an instant. And it's as if God says, because you insist on becoming more than what I made you to be, you will become less than what I made you to be. And because you aspire to be more than a man, I will make you to be less than a man until you acknowledge that I am the most high, that I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. You see, God does not tolerate people who rebel against his sovereignty and live under their self-rule. Verse 37 says, all who walk in pride, he, that is God, is able to humble. Now we have to remember why this book was written. It was written to encourage people who were in exile in a foreign land under the cosh of oppressive, brutal kings and leaders. So it's written to them to say king after king after king will pass by, but there remains one true king. This book is written to encourage them to see that even though these people look enormous, in terms of their power and might and their, their sway, when they say something, it's done. They can know deep down in their hearts and trust fully with faith there is a most high God who is ruler even over that enormous figure and that enormous empire. So we can take comfort in that, can't we? We can trust God even in these circumstances that we live in as aliens and strangers in this land. So when even the Scottish Parliament says, we don't need God to define what a marriage is, when they say, we know how to govern our own land so that our society flourishes and our children prosper, how should we respond? Well, with trust that God is sovereign over all these things, over this government, and is even able to humble those in the right time, those who walk in pride. So what do we do when people in our city, our neighbors, some of the people we love the most, who are not only far from God, but so confident in their atheism that they mock the very idea of God. How will we reach them? Well, we trust that God is sovereign and all those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And with that trust, we then speak. And maybe, just maybe, they will come to know that even though God opposes the proud, He gives grace to the humble. That's what he shows us in verses 34 to 37. This is the third thing. God shows us that he gives grace to the humble. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, 
Maybe you're here and you're sitting, you're thinking that you're under some sense of guilt or conviction tonight, that you've been living your life as a self-made man or woman. You're thinking, all this is by me and for me. My encouragement for you is to do what Nebuchadnezzar did in verse 34. Lift your eyes to heaven and praise God. At the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar said, I lifted my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. So there is a direct link between his looking to God and his coming to his senses. And praise God that he has not left us without somewhere to look for restoration and forgiveness, to see things in the world as they really are, to help us come to our senses. That place where we can come to our senses about both our sin and the righteousness of God is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, in fact, becoming less than what he was, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What a picture of humility on behalf of the Most High God. John Stott says, every time we look at the cross, Jesus seems to be saying to us, I'm here because of you. It's your sin I'm bearing. It's your death I'm dying. He says, nothing in all history cuts us down to size like the cross. But all of us who have inflated views of ourselves until we have visited that place called Calvary, we will not shrink to our true size. God has given us his son that we might look to him and live and I wonder if you have looked to him in humility seeing your sin for what it is and confessing it freely because you see that on that cross he's paying the price for it to do away with it so that you have access to God full and free access have you put your faith and trust in him? Have you renounced your sins and confessed him as the most high God? That's the way to salvation. That's the way to be saved. That's the way of humility. Look to heaven and praise God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. Then I praised the most high. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. He almost bursts into song. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as self-made men. Self-made women? No, nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven, with the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Finally, he gets it. He declares God's sovereignty. He is most high. All this is by you and for you. He gets it. And shows us that the answer to our prideful self-sufficiency is to humble ourselves before the Lord, knowing that when we do that, he will lift us up. 
and he is restored to his kingdom. But more than that, he's blessed even beyond what his kingdom was before. How gracious, how gracious is our God. Now, when you know what it's like to be on the receiving end of God's grace just like that, do you know what you want to do? You want to tell the whole world about it. You want to tell the whole world about it. You want all the mountains to be down low so that nothing stops your voice from projecting this. Let me tell you what God has done for me. How he has changed me. You want every valley lifted up so that the sound just carries forever across the whole globe. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar does. He's writing a letter. He's writing his testimony. His testimony in verse 1. To the whole world that he's saying, everybody, listen to this. Something amazing has happened in my life. Let me tell you what the Most High God has done for me. God has changed me from being a proud king with a swagger to being a humble king with praise for the only true king. That's his testimony. What's yours? What's yours? Every one of our stories is a treasure. And it's vital. You don't need to come from some crazy druggy background to have a good testimony. Everybody's testimony is a testimony of the grace of God who cuts us down, who trims us back and helps us to see that he is the most high God and that before him, and his holiness, we must repent. What's your testimony? You know, there are 430,000 people in this city who are living their lives in prideful self-sufficiency of God. They look in their lives and say, this is by me, for me. And one day it will be too late for them to be restored. Why not tell at least one person this week what God has done to change you? Saying, listen, I want to tell you about what God has done in my life. And let us not be ashamed in doing so. Because it might just be the case that people respond as Nebuchadnezzar did. And turn in repentance to praise the Most High God, just as we have. Let's bow our heads.